Hello, and welcome to the Flathead Beacon Podcast. I'm Andy Viano. This week, we're talking about avalanches with someone who studies them every day, Eric Peitsch, a research physical scientist at the U.S. Geological Survey. Eric's one of the experts my colleague Maggie Dresser talked to for her cover story this week. It's called An Unforgiving Winter, and it's about what has already been a deadlier than normal year in the backcountry here in Montana and throughout the West. I'll talk to Eric about the work he's doing, what's causing the particularly dangerous conditions this year, and about a perhaps surprising trend regarding what kind of person has been finding themselves in serious danger in recent years. Maggie's story goes into a lot more than that, too, so please do yourself a favor and read it, maybe right now, at flatheadbeacon.com or in the print edition, which is available on newsstands throughout Northwest Montana. Before we get to Eric, a reminder that this podcast is made possible in part by the members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. Members support all of our journalism in all of its forms, and they do so for as little as $5 per month. Plus, they get some great bonus perks, too. To find out more about the Editors Club or to join today, check out beaconeditorsclub.com. All right, let's move on and say hello to this week's guest, Eric Peitsch, who I talked to via Zoom on Tuesday afternoon. It is my pleasure now to be joined by research physical scientist Eric Peitsch to talk about this week's Flathead Beacon cover story, An Unforgiving Winter, by my colleague Maggie Dresser. Eric, thank you so much for making time to sit down and talk today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Andy. Well, before we get into chatting about Maggie's story, why don't we start a little bit by, uh, uh, if you would, just explain to folks what a uh, what a physical or a research physical scientist does and, and what your role is. Right. So, a research physical scientist in the USGS can mean a variety of things. Uh, basically, a scientist that studies or researches physical processes. And my field of research is in snow and ice. So, my research focuses on. Uh, mostly avalanche, um, the sort of the avalanche processes, and that ranges from wet snow avalanches to avalanche frequency throughout time, and uh, snowpack in, in sort of alpine and mountainous terrain in, in those avalanches or avalanche paths. So we we use a variety of techniques to uh, or methods to study those things, including using tree rings to look at avalanche frequency. We use drones to map snowpack depth in complex avalanche terrain and look at snow, uh, as I mentioned, snow depth uh, throughout, uh, throughout the mountainous terrain. Well, why don't we start kind of there. Right now in northwest Montana, what are the, uh, the snow and, and avalanche conditions like? or What has this, this season been like so far? Right. So around here, we have a... It, it, we have a current snowpack structure where we have a, a weak layer buried deeper in the snowpack, anywhere from, from one to four feet deep. And that's, uh, that layer formed just, just after uh, around mid-January. In, in mid-January, we had a, a really warm storm with high rain levels that deposited a crust almost up to about 7,000 feet. And then we had a little bit of snow, and then we had some sort of cold and clear weather. And that created a layer called surface ore. And it's basically the winter equivalent of dew. And it's those sort of 
sparkly, feathery crystals that you might see on the snow surface. And, and on the snow surface, they're totally benign and really pretty to look at. But once they're buried by subsequent snowfall, that's when they can become a dangerous weak layer. And you can imagine that those feathery crystals sitting under a thick slab of snow can only support so much snow. And once you put enough stress on that weak layer, then that weak layer is likely to collapse and fail um, and potentially cause avalanches, which it has done here uh, in this region uh, for several weeks now um, since that layer was buried. So again, it's buried, you know, depending on where you are throughout the region, anywhere from one to four feet deep and has caused, uh, you know, some several substantially or several large avalanches uh, throughout the region. Where for for laymen, and I include myself in that 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 layer that is is the the feathery crystals, I think as you describe them, where does that come from what What causes that layer to form right so again they they start on the surface they 're formed on the surface, and that 's why they 're called surface four um, and what happens they they often form during cold and clear nights, and so Imagine that you have a, a snowpack and then the air temperature right above that snowpack is quite cold. So you, you have this temperature difference between the air right above the snowpack and the snow surface. And that temperature difference or temperature gradient causes the surface snow to change and uh, to basically form these, this surface or on, uh, on the surface. And uh, we get, you know, in a cold, clear night because we get a lot of radiation escaping from the snowpack on those clear nights. It's not held in where if it were cloudy, then those clouds would actually help trap some of that radiation that leaves at night. So we have a lot of heat leaving the snowpack, causing those feathery crystals to form. So, you know, if you look, if you think about when you go out to your car in the morning to scrape off the uh, your windshield, and if it's a, you know, a cold, clear night, you get you often get frost on that windshield. And if it's, you know, if the temperature difference between your windshield and the, the air temperature above it is, is, uh, is enough, then you actually start to get some, you know, some frost that, that really small um, that begins to look like some of those feathery crystals called surface or. Let's go back to, to something else you said a little bit ago about the, the created these conditions for many avalanches in the last few weeks. Part of Maggie's story uh, is about how not just here, but around the, the Northwest, there have been a number of, of avalanches and, and particularly deadly and dangerous avalanches so far this year. Can you compare, I guess, the conditions this year to conditions that, that we've seen in past years in, in this area? Can you quantify a little bit just how susceptible we've been in the last few weeks to these avalanches compared to, to other years. So, and I guess I'll first start with this, you know, the layer that I'm talking about isn't, isn't necessarily the culprit in avalanches throughout the Western U.S. You know, it, in, in different regions, it really depends on the snow structure there. And it's not necessarily a, a buried surface or layer in all these other regions. Um, but it, at some point it is a weak layer because you do need four ingredients for an avalanche. You need a weak layer you need a slab on top of that weak layer. You need a steep enough slope for an avalanche to occur, and then you need a trigger, which could be you know, more snowfall, a human, or, or uh, even wind transporting snow. So I just wanted to, to sort of clarify that. But around here, you know, compared to other winters, it's, it, uh, I guess I would say that we've, we've had buried surface water layers in the past, and 
they've been reactive and they've caused avalanches. And, you know, there's, I, I don't know exactly off the top of my head, but they, they've, they've caused, you know, close calls. And I'm not certain of the number of avalanche fatalities that have been associated with buried surface work. So it's, it's not, you know, it's not an abnormal occurrence or it's not an abnormally, an abnormal uh, buried weak layer. Uh, we do get surface ore that forms here, um, but I'd say for this year, what's what's notable at least is that this surface ore layer has been quite reactive or um, you know sensitive to triggering for quite a while. You know since since basically it, it formed and then got uh, subsequently buried by new snow, it's been it's been fairly reactive. And I think the Flathead Avalanche Center, you know, has reported activity, avalanche activity, or avalanche triggering associated with this layer for, uh, for several weeks now. So I think the, you know, the, the maybe notable um, issue with this weak layer is that how long it's been, how long it's been sensitive uh, to triggering. I don't know if, if prognosticating is much of, of what you do, but is there a way to anticipate how much longer conditions could remain that way? Uh, unfortunately not because, you know, our, the avalanche hazard is, is, is going to fluctuate with every different weather event and how that weather event influences the snowpack. And so, you know, I, I couldn't say that, oh yeah, it'll be done in, you know, X number of weeks. Uh, wish I could, <laughs> but unfortunately I can't. And, uh, so I think, you know, we, we have to sort of be content with, with dealing with this layer as, and as we're out, you know, recreating or working and, I think, you know, we just have to sort of deal with it on a, on a day-to-day basis and see how it changes and how the, ha- the associated hazard fluctuates uh, as time goes on. Let me switch gears and, and sort of close on, on one other piece that, that is referenced here in Maggie's story. And, and she quotes you as, as talking about a, uh, a study that was done. I believe the study, how old are the people who die in avalanches? And, and you can read more about it in her piece, but, but what were the results of that study? And, and I guess what, if anything, about those results did, did you find particularly interesting? So we did that study, uh, published, it was published early last year, but mostly in 2019. So we had data, we looked at avalanche fatalities from 1950, because that's when the records start to become more uh, more comprehensive or more robust. Uh, so from 1950 to, to 2019. And we wanted to take a look at the age of avalanche victims. And simply because it, it seemed to me, just anecdotally, you know, my, my observations that it seemed like maybe the ages were, were getting older. So we looked at all those data and we, we had over, over about 900 avalanche fatalities throughout the United States and with ages associated with them, there were, there were more avalanche fatalities since then, but those were the ones with ages associated with them. And we found an increase in the median age of avalanche victims. So from 1950 to 1989, the median age was 27 years old. And from 1990 to 2019, the median age is 34. So it's, it, it is a significant, statistically significant increase. And we, we also looked at the, uh, well, I guess I'll step back. We, we, we looked at 1990 to, to the current time because 1990 is a time period when avalanche forecasting and avalanche education really started taking hold. And so, you know, we also had an increase in snowmobile and 
skiing technology where both snowmobilers and skiers could get further into the backcountry, spend more time in avalanche terrain. But then we also had, again, the, the, uh, the sort of onset of more frequent avalanche forecasts and more avalanche education. So it's sort of, you know, the modern era, so to speak. And that, you know, we, we wanted to sort of look at it from that period onward as well. And from that period onward as well, there was an increase in the median age of, of avalanche victims as well. So we found that the two age groups that showed a significant increase in, in age were the 30 to 39 and the 40 to 49 age group. And, you know, again, unfortunately, we don't have age data for the general population of backcountry users. And that would allow us to make some more statements because, you know, we could then look at the bigger backcountry user population and make some you know, make some statements about how that relates to the avalanche victims. But unfortunately, we just we don't have those data. So we presented these results and we can't really, you know, it's, it's tough because we can't really say, you know, why this is the case. We can, you know, wave our arms and, and, and sort of make some speculation. But ultimately, um, we can't really, we, we don't really know why yet. Hopefully, we might be able to get at that in, in a few years down the road when we look at the data again. But the, the take-home message really is, you know, should, should mostly be the same, and that's that if the, if the age is increasing, then perhaps, you know, avalanche education providers and avalanche backcountry, avalanche for, uh, backcountry forecasting centers could potentially, you know, tailor their messages uh, or, or change their messaging or their, their classes to, um, you know, not only to, but, but to help incorporate the, the uh, the older users that seem to be seem to be the victims, at least more recently, in avalanche accidents. And so again, it's it's sort of maybe one option would be to create you know refresher courses. And I know the the friends of the Flathead Avalanche Center started doing refresher courses this year uh, in the local region. You know, folks that have basically taken a level one or a level two or whatever education they had, and but maybe it's been a while since they took that avalanche class and. You know, the, the knowledge has changed. We've learned a lot over the years in, in avalanche science. And so I think by, by coming back and, and refreshing your knowledge, you know, could, could help everyone in general. So I think that's sort of the take-home message from, you know, from the paper um, is that it's important to, uh, you know, to get back and refresh your knowledge. For sure. Eric, this has been really informative. Thank you so much for uh, for making the time. I, I, I guess just one last thing on the way out. If folks are planning on recreating in the backcountry, where can they look for the latest information? What should they do to keep themselves as safe as possible? If users are heading out to the backcountry, please check flatheadavalanche.org if you're in the local region. And the Flathead Avalanche Center there provides an avalanche forecast every day that's out by 7 a.m. And they also have a listing of avalanche classes available in the local area that are put on by the Friends of the Flathead Avalanche Center. So check out flatheadavalanche.org if you're in another area or region, then you can go to avalanche.org and find your appropriate region there. Excellent. Thank you so much, Eric. Appreciate you uh, sitting down and doing this. Yeah, thanks, Andy. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Eric Peitch from USGS. And to find out a lot more about this avalanche season, what might be causing the uptick in deaths, and what local groups are trying to do to keep people safe, go read Maggie Dresser's cover story in this week's Flathead Beacon. 
an unforgiving winter. Now, here are the biggest stories from the last seven days as of 10 p.m. on Tuesday, February 23rd. Less than a week after every school district in northwest Montana announced they were keeping their in-school mask mandates in place for the remainder of the school year, at least one major district has reversed course. The Board of Trustees for Big Fork Schools voted 4-3 on February 17th to end mandatory masking in its buildings on March 15th. The board reached its decision against the recommendation of the district superintendent, Matt Jensen, the principals of all three of the district schools, the Flathead County Health Officer, and the broad consensus of public health officials nationwide. School officials have so far been mum on how they plan to accommodate an expected surge of teachers, especially those with underlying health conditions, who will request to teach remotely beginning March 15th to limit their exposure to COVID-19, and also how the district will handle the likely large number of students who will ask to do the same. Proponents of the mask mandate at the board meeting cautioned that repealing it could potentially lead the district to return to either all remote or a hybrid learning model after they had successfully spent the first six months of the school year in the classroom. Other districts are also expected to take up the issue, including in Kalispell, where a large crowd is expected for a special meeting of the school board on Wednesday night. Elsewhere, a Kalispell man who once stood accused of deliberate homicide after a fire killed his father at a trailer where they both lived is on track to stand trial for a lesser charge this spring. Jason Weldelay pleaded not guilty to criminal endangerment on Tuesday, less than a week after Flathead County District Court Judge Amy Eddy tossed out a plea agreement that would have kept Weldelay out of jail. Eddy said the sentence did not match the original allegations that Weldelay barricaded his semi-ambulatory father in his bedroom and set the trailer on fire, but prosecutors in a sentencing memorandum explaining the decision said, quote, new compelling information had since come to light. Deputy County Attorney Amy Cannison wrote that other witnesses identified a number of other possible suspects and that the victim, Gerald Weldelay, was a known methamphetamine user with a habit of starting fires who had the drug in his system when an autopsy was performed. The younger Weldelay could face up to 10 years in prison if he is convicted of criminal endangerment. In other news, the long-anticipated solution to fix Kalispell's reviled Foy's Lake roundabout has been revealed by the Montana Department of Transportation. The intersection of Foy's Lake Road and the Kalispell Bypass is no stranger to long traffic backups, particularly during rush times. And in order to ease that congestion, engineers will create an overpass to allow traffic on the bypass to move uninterrupted. Below it, two teardrop-shaped roundabouts are designed to help traffic flow more smoothly on and off of the bypass. Construction on the project is tentatively scheduled to begin on March 1st, with a target completion date of the spring of 2022. And finally, Flathead High School has won the first state championship ever awarded in girls wrestling in the state of Montana. The Brave Brawlers won the inaugural Girls Wrestling State Championships last weekend at Lockwood High School 
despite not having a single individual champion. We talked earlier this year on this podcast to Flathead coach Amber Downing about what the advent of girls wrestling means to a generation of young women now involved in the sport. And now is also a great time to go back and reread Micah Drew's cover story on the subject, Their Moment on the Mat, and I'll link to that story in the show notes. That's all for this week. You can read more about all of these stories and catch the latest breaking news and read it all for free on our newly redesigned website. That's flatheadbeacon.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.